So we're going to give you tonight, uh, it's session six, seven, and eight. We're not doing session eight. Session eight will um, encourage you to watch at home. We'll send you a link to that online. Um, it's, it's just very, some very practical um, sessions uh, as far as for your own uh, care and your own parenting. And, uh, and for those of you who don't have, um, don't have children at home, this, this, again, is an opportunity for you to learn how to pray for parents and also prepare yourself, but also be involved with, um, with kids that are at the church here and to have kind of a mindset that's of the same kind of mindset that, um, uh, that we'd, we'd like for all, all the church to have. Um, we're going to start tonight off with, with the first, a first video that's actually one of the last videos that, that's part of the series, but it's a, it's a grandmother's story um, that we wanted to show first before we start going into the second half of the called and capable portion of, of this. So let's just um, take some time to watch this together. Hi, my name is Chad Hangay, and uh, I've been working with Connected Families since 2005. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified life coach, as well as a workshop presenter for Connected Families. I had the opportunity to coach with a grandma who uh, had a grandson who moved in with her uh, as a teenager. Now, she had had relationship with him off and on uh, for um, a number of years, but not really since he was younger, uh, and then had full custody of a teenage boy. Can you imagine that? Well, as we started coaching, uh, she was stuck, and she admitted she was really stuck and wasn't quite sure what to do or how to get unstuck. Fear, anxiety, frustration, resentment, all part of the uh, new parenting experience for her. I, what, we, what we did uh, is really work through the Connected Families framework, the, the messages, child, you're safe, you're loved, you're called and you're capable and you're responsible. And uh, what I'm most uh, excited about in the story that you're going to hear is just how determined this grandma was to make sure that her grandson understood the first two messages in particular, you're safe and you're loved, which then over time gave her the opportunity to use her authority to call out the, the gifts gone awry in the message, child, you're called and you're capable, and then hold them accountable in ways that help grow wisdom in him. So listen to this story. It's going to be a good one. I am a 76-year-old grandmother who recently received custody of my 14-year-old grandson, Noah. This has been quite a journey. I feel the Titanic finally turning around, and I want to share my story to encourage you. When Noah first came to live with me seven months ago, many days I felt like I had hit a wall. I was unhappy and frustrated because I didn't know what to do with his behavior. He was unhappy and frustrated and angry because his life had been totally changed in one day. It was no secret he did not want to be here. I usually responded to his behavior out of frustration with angry, quick punishment. I knew it wasn't healthy. The first thing that changed since working with connected families is the way I think about Noah. I hadn't realized how critical I was. When I honestly answered the question, how do I view Noah, it was a reality check. I knew I had been thinking of him as a problem that I did not know how to fix. I was irritated by his behavior. I knew that I loved him, but I did not like him much of the time. That toxic view of Noah came out in the way I talked to him and how I treated him. Sometimes I would manage not to say anything, but I know my face and body language sent the message, I don't like you. It's hard to even say that out loud. Chad, my connected family's coach, helped me to see that I could not implement the first two foundational messages of, you are safe with me and you are loved no matter what, as long as I held this toxic view of Noah. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I had to change my thinking. So Chad asked me to answer this question. How does God view Noah? I know that Noah is God's workmanship. God loves Noah as much as he loves Jesus and as much as he loves me. God has adopted Noah as his own son. 
God has begun a good work in Noah and will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I wrote out those truths and some others on a 3 by 5 card, and I read them often. When I get that critical thinking going again, I just get out my card and remind myself of who Noah is and how God sees him. I feel my gut relax and my face soften, and I usually add, I really love this boy. God, please help me to love him as you love him and see him as you see him. What a difference. Sometimes a whole day can go by now without unpleasant exchanges, and I can really love him in my attitude, my words, and my facial expressions. The other day I asked Noah to do something. I had been frustrated and tired, and he looked at me and said, Please? I said, I'm the parent here, and you're the child. I don't have to say please. Wow, where's the love? He came back with, We say please because we respect each other. I said, You're right, Noah. Thanks. I needed to be reminded of that. Since then, I've been saying please with a needed and formerly lacking touch of humility, and it has softened our exchanges. Now I see that he probably felt demeaned by my lack of courtesy. I think the fact that I would humble myself has taken away some of his defensiveness and maybe lowered a wall a bit. It was a breakthrough. To be honest, I have to say that sometimes I feel at a loss as to how to implement the connected family's messages of, you are safe with me, you are loved no matter what, you are called and capable, and you are responsible for your actions. Especially when I'm in the grip of anger. I guess I had expected a quick miracle because I had read the book and listened to the CDs. I have been unable to pull off any quick miracle because I was trying in my own efforts. I realize this has to be a spiritual action. So I continually ask God for grace to learn the principles. I particularly ask for the grace of kindness since I didn't learn it in my family upbringing. I ask God for wisdom about how to interact with Noah and show him love in tangible ways. I don't want to be a pushover and accept unacceptable behavior, but I do want to show him love all the time. I think God led me to an idea. When Noah lived with me when he was in kindergarten, I fixed this mailbox for him and would put treats and little toys and notes in it for him. I kept it all these years so there is an affection attachment to it. I got it out and started leaving a journal with messages in it for him. The flag is up means there's a new note. I will read a few entries. Monday, January 22nd. Just a note to tell you how much I appreciate you getting up and getting ready for school with no hassle. It is an honor to be your grandmother. I love you very much, and I'm glad you're living here. Grandma, with a heart. I prayed before and during writing this next journal entry and what came out shows the miracle taking place in myself to be able to pick out the positive things to affirm and not criticize the negative. Here's what I wrote. Dear Noah, it's early Saturday morning about 6.40. I'm just thinking about yesterday and how well things went. You were helpful with the garbage load up to take to the dump. Good on you. And I really like your company too. You took the initiative to clean up the garbage from our neighbor's property, even when I said I'd help you. That shows ambition to do the right thing. You go. And you were diligent to clean up your room so you could go to fun night, and I'm glad you went to that event and had a good time. I want you to know that I hold you responsible for certain things, not because I need the help, but because I want to do my part to help you become the responsible, mature young man that God desires for you to be. And I see that happening in you. How exciting to be on the sidelines, watching you grow and cheering you on. Go for the gold, mighty man of God. I love you, Grandma, with three hearts. It was a miracle to be able to write this journal entry and be sincere about it. If God can do this in me, think of what other miracles are possible. I am humbled and grateful. Only God.
I wanted Steve to show that video first because I really liked it. I, I feel like it showed the fact that these are things you put into practice over time, but so much of relational struggles has to do with heart work. I mean, you notice she, she focused on the miracle being what happened in her own heart as she learned to love, truly, sincerely love and enjoy her grandson. Um, I think of the words that Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. If even that, then how much more people in the household of faith or our own children? Our children are, yeah, we're parents and we're, we have authority over them and responsibility, but they also are deserving as, as much respect and the same principles that are in the Bible about how we treat one another um, with grace and kindness. So um, I just had a few thoughts I wanted to share before we jump into the videos. One, that you can look at discipline as discipleship, and discipleship is ongoing for a long time, just like faith. It's lifelong, and uh, for those of you who have kids who are grown up, you know that it, it goes on because my faith is still growing and being strengthened and sometimes weakened and needing encouragement. And so in the household of faith, this is true for all of us. Um, so as you're watching tonight, you'll notice that a lot of the things are practical, but just because they're practical doesn't mean that they're devoid of the gospel because it's a, it's a way of, um, Let's see. Um, it's a way of teaching our kids how to, we're stirring them up to love and good works. Um, there's no formula that's ever, or parenting strategy that's going to make anyone repent. There's no guarantees that your child will grow up and have their own personal and sincere faith. But we do know in the Bible that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, Surely this is also true in our dealings with one another and with our children. Um, and I, I was thinking about this, that these things that they're going to be teaching you about how to approach some different discipline things, um, they don't connect a child's behavior with gaining their parents' approval because those first foundational things are already, you're safe with me and you love me. And that's such a great picture of the gospel that we don't earn God's approval by our works. It's completely by his grace alone. Um, they will get to the gospel at the very end of the, la of the last video that we showed today. But um, I just wanted to say this, some of the best parenting advice I ever got was from C.J. Mahaney when he said, if you want to raise kids who love the gospel, the most important thing is that you love the gospel and that they visibly see that the gospel has an effect on your life. So they see you changed by the gospel. They see you humbled, confessing, repentant. Um, they see you apologizing to them and talking about your own need for Jesus. So just keep all of that in mind. That Again, this is focusing on specific discipline strategies, but you bring the gospel into this whole thing, living it out day by day. Child, you are called and capable. Today, Jim and Lynn are gonna give you specific tools about how to build wisdom in your children. We are so glad to be back with you. We don't even really know who all of you are, but truly we, we pray and we ask God to give us love for you and we feel like we're with you. And last week, we discussed how even when your kids misbehave, they're still called and capable, created in God's image and for His purposes. We explored how you can identify gifts gone awry and guide your kids to use those gifts in more honoring and rewarding ways. 
Hopefully you're seeing some changes in both you and your kids as you look for the good in your challenges and affirm it. Today we're going to talk about how to use discipline challenges to build strengths in your kids and to do it in ways that don't exasperate your children but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Mm -hmm. A lot of times kids misbehave simply because they don't have the skills and wisdom they need to do better. And in this session, you'll be equipped to coach your struggling kids by teaching the skills and building the wisdom they need. You'll learn how to effectively offer choices, ask thoughtful questions, and solve problems, even together as a team. Mm -hmm. A dad I coached was only interested in using consequences to stop his kids' misbehavior. So I asked him, if you were struggling at your job, would you more likely trust and learn from a boss who criticizes you and docks your pay every time you make mistakes? or a boss who addresses your challenges with encouragement and tools to help you learn. Oh, I get it, he said. That analogy helped him understand how he had unintentionally been discouraging his kids. So to understand what best helps kids learn to do the right thing when they've misbehaved, think about what you already know about how to motivate kids to learn to walk or ride a bike or start a musical instrument. Your kids gain their first skills as you encourage them by creating fun learning opportunities and celebrating little steps of progress. You're relaxed. You even laugh with them when they do it wrong, <laughs> and you keep giving your best energy and excitement to their progress. Unfortunately, parents often get upset when kids misbehave and then miss opportunities to build skills, like skills for putting things away, doing chores, conflict resolution, or growing in the character skills the Bible teaches for all of us, like kindness and self-control, to name a couple. So picture yourself doing what you already know how to do, to encourage your kids while they make a mistake riding or walking or just playing and maybe you simply say oops that didn't go so well get up try again and then picture yourself doing the same thing when they're struggling with respect toward a sibling or not picking up their mess or having an outburst about bedtime like oops it's not going so well tonight is it try again i know you can get it it obviously isn't quite this simple, but mm -hmm. we want to help you improve your ability to build vitally important skills and wisdom into your kids. Because as kids grow in a sense of calling and capability, misbehavior often loses its appeal. Yeah, it does. And research reveals this. It, it shows us that the most powerful way to help oppositional or challenging children is to create opportunities for kids to practice helpful skills and then affirm them strongly about what they're learning. So let's start with how to effectively teach kids skills. The first principle for teaching skills is to practice the skills when kids are calm. Mm -hmm. This prepares our kids' brains to access what they learn in practice when they're upset and their frontal lobe just kind of goes offline. Skills have to be well established by practicing for kids to access them when they're upset. We used to practice while playing Legos with the kids. Jim would play the Lego boy who got upset and didn't want to clean up, and he'd have a little conversation with the kids about how to calm the Lego boy down so he was ready to clean, and then they'd act it out. I loved being the Lego boy. <laughs> Soon the kids were putting some of the same things into practice in real-life conflicts about cleaning. Mm -hmm. And you may remember from the last session how seven-year-old Kyle was frequently spewing intense and hurtful words whenever he was angry. So his mom, Brenda, got very intentional to call out his gift gone awry and then practice with him to use his gift of a big vocabulary in a more honoring and helpful way. And Brenda has shared with us a bunch of the ways she practiced with Kyle, and most of them are things all parents can do. So consider this list and see which things fit you and your children the best. The first thing she did to train Kyle for real-life challenges was to keep things fun, like teaching a child to kick a ball. One of the key things she did then was to do lots of little role plays. She asked him about his most challenging times at home and school, and they worked together to come up with and then practice things he could say when it was hard. Phrases like, this is really hard. I'm feeling nervous, but I'm going to give it a shot. Or, even if I make a mistake, I'm probably going to learn something. Or, I had a strong feeling, but I showed some self-control. I did my best. And specific to his angry outbursts, she helped him learn to say, I'm so mad, I'm going to go take a break. Mm -hmm. I have some really strong feelings that I don't know what to do with. These are important phrases to practice. And by practicing them in lighthearted ways, almost like play, 
Parents help build brain pathways that make it easier for kids to access those phrases when tempers flare, because when they physically experience speaking a helpful response and then getting affirmed for what they did and then helping them see the benefit of doing it, it gets far easier for them to access that information during challenges. And then Brenda reinforced what Kyle had practiced by affirming any little ways in which she saw him working to apply what he'd learned. In the ebb and flow of everyday life, she called out the wonderful ways their families could or did use words to honor and build up. As Brenda encouraged and built her family up this way, it was natural for her to talk about 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Mm. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Mm. Yeah, faith become so natural when we act in grace this way. Mm -hmm. And as Brenda kept growing in this approach, sure enough, Kyle began to follow her lead. And she later reported that as the whole family kept getting more proactive, she said, we all grew in our identity as a family of learners. That's so important. Brenda's family still had some hot tempers sometimes, mm -hmm. but they usually felt really good about the way they handled it. And what a change from a boy predicting his future in hell to a boy leading and caring at home mm. and at school. Yeah. So let's move on and talk about the second principle for teaching skills, and it's to find the just right <laughs> challenge for your child. This is about setting kids up to experience and learn from a healthy and positive balance of success and failure rather than just setting them up to fail. It's been said that optimal learning happens through a combination of 80% success and 20% failure. But we see parents set kids up to fail frequently by holding unrealistic expectations and then focusing more on their failure than on their success. For example, have you ever told your young kids to clear the table thinking that's pretty straightforward <laughs> and then you return to find they barely started? Dwelling on their failure here is most likely to lead to more failure next time. And then nagging until they do it keeps them dependent on your nagging. And keep in mind that if a child regularly refuses to do a certain thing you've requested, their defiance might just mean that what you've asked them to do or the way you've asked it doesn't make sense, is too overwhelming, complicated, or even scary mm. for their developing brains. So remember, kids learn best when they feel encouraged, and they feel encouraged when you dwell far more on their success than on their failure. And the just right challenge sets our kids up to have a good shot at succeeding and affirms that any failure along the way <laughs> It's just part of the learning. Yeah. Supporting a just right challenge might simply mean that you just stay near your discouraged child and encourage them when they do tough homework or a new chore mm -hmm. by noticing and affirming the hard work they started instead of just noticing when they get off track. Or you can break tasks into doable chunks and celebrate the little successes along the way. Like, it's time to clear the plates and bowls, and, and then when a child does it, affirm it. And then say, nice start. Now you can grab the forks and knives and extras and then wipe the table. And when that's done, encourage future success by adding thanks. It's a blessing to the family when you get the table clean and ready for the next meal. This approach builds brain pathways to understand and enjoy that success and trains a child to be more independent and thorough the next time. I had an aha moment about just right challenges when Bethany was eight years old. She was timid about greeting new people and she'd hide behind me, look at the ground and say her name in baby talk. I'd get so embarrassed and frustrated. Seriously, kid, you're like eight years old. <laughs> when it was time to meet somebody, I'd be like, stand up straight and greet them appropriately, which of course just made her more anxious and less eager to meet new people. As I thought about what was going on, I realized, okay, Bethany's really sensitive and kind of anxious, and this is not a just right challenge for her. We talked about how this was hard for her, but also about how fun it would be to enjoy meeting people and making them feel really welcomed. So we decided together to break the challenge into lots of little steps and keep track of them as bravery points. <laughs> we started with, okay, just stand up straight and I'll introduce you. Then look at people's tummy instead of the ground. The next bravery point was something like, I'll start, but you add your name in an eight-year-old voice. And then, now look at their chin. So you get the idea. It took a few weeks, but by the time Bethany reached 25 bravery points, she was really enjoying yeah. meeting people. Yeah. As her reward, I took her to dinner, and we talked about all she had learned and how fun it was to meet people now. Yeah, and you might be thinking that this sounds a little bit like bribery. 
and at some level it could be. <laughs> Rewards, though, can be helpful if parents use them to occasionally jumpstart skills. But it's important to discern how your kids are responding when you use these rewards. And what I love about the story Lynn just told is how she watched for and affirmed Bethany's joy in the learning. And soon Bethany found joy not from bravery points, from the bribe, but from meeting real people. And so this is a great illustration of how once joy or a sense of accomplishment takes over, that becomes the reward. And if you got to know Bethany today, she totally <laughs> loves meeting new people. And she's got a unique gift for making people feel special and celebrated. We can't help but wonder how many people would have missed out on Bethany's gracious, warm spirit if we had just keep pushing her to just stop being shy. So let's take a minute to reflect on this idea about the just right challenge. So consider a behavior challenge you're having and how you might break that challenge into four or five micro skills your child might need to grow in capability for that challenge. And what might you do to help your child feel more successful in that challenge? For the rest of this session, we're going to explore three strategies for building wisdom in the context of misbehavior so that little by little, kids start disciplining themselves. Yeah, generally speaking, when people get controlling, it's because they are internally feeling out of control. This is true for parents or for kids. So what parents often do to stop their kids' misguided efforts to be in control is to try to take control themselves. And it's not always pretty, <laughs> and it often makes matters worse. So instead, we teach parents to delegate an appropriate amount of healthy power to kids. This is not to say we give away our own authority, but that we use our authority mm -hmm. to give kids some ownership of what's happening. When kids feel empowered in healthy ways, they have far less need for unhealthy control of others, mm -hmm. and they grow into an identity of being called and capable. The three strategies we recommend for delegating healthy power in a way that builds wisdom are offer to you can choices, ask thoughtful questions, and solve problems together. Whatever age your kids are, the time to start using these strategies is now. And any child old enough to talk is capable of growing in wisdom. So let's explore this first strategy, one that even parents of toddlers tell us leads to calmer parents and a big drop in power struggles with their kids. Mm -hmm. The strategy is to offer two you-can-blank choices that are at once reasonable and that you can live with. Doing this helps kids feel capable and responsible to make wise choices, and it often diffuses power struggles. And this happens because instead of commanding kids, which often turns on the fight-or-flight parts of their brains, remember that, it turns on the logic part of their brain and helps them develop the thinking needed to make wise choices. If you find yourself nagging or repeating yourself, just take a breath, calm down, and gently and warmly get good eye contact, mm -hmm. give clear choices or instructions, and even ask the kids to repeat their options. We did that a lot with our children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do it once and follow through with any actions you've made clear. <laughs> yeah, our distractible kids did so much better when we remember this. And so we want to get really practical. Imagine your child won't get off the screen. She dawdles and ignores you and maybe even says she's not getting off. A typical parenting move might be to simply say, if you don't get off right now, I'm going to unplug this, or even you'll be disciplined. This is a parent has all the power demand. Parents use this approach a lot because it works. But if we judge what works less on immediate behavior and more on long-term learning, what we often discover is that the child is learning to depend on powerful people to tell them what to do. Wisdom, the ability to understand both what to do and why to do it, is nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to share a real-life story about a single mom who offered choices that would help her son choose well without manipulating him. We know this sounds almost passive to those who've not put this sort of parenting into practice, but we hear nearly every day from parents who experience great results. Lynette is this parent, and she was having a pretty intense power struggle with her son over video games. She reported saying things like, you're over your screen time again. I'm tired of this. Give me that controller right now. <laughs> Can you picture the tug of war? <laughs> <laughs> things began to change when Lynette shifted her approach and started saying things like, I know it's tough getting off. You love that game. 
You can keep playing for 15 minutes and lose your time tomorrow, or you can close it down right now and enjoy your time tomorrow. Either way is fine by mm -hmm. me. Her calm choices and determined follow-through was a key part of turning the tide on this issue in her home. Most of the time when parents offer two choices and kids still demand a different option, it's because the kids don't feel valued and understood. So remember to connect a little, be safe, be loving, uh, communicate those messages, and then calmly offer these two you-can choices. This makes the interaction be about wisdom and not power. And it helps kids learn to make wise choices when the stakes are higher when you're not around. <laughs> Offering choices to younger kids is also helpful to train them in making decisions rather than just depending on mom or dad's yes or no. For example, if your four-year-old is not putting his shoes on to get in the car, you can offer, you can put your shoes on by yourself now, or you can carry them to the car and I will put them on before you get out. Mm -hmm. This lets your child know they have power and that the shoes will be on before he gets out of the car. The more kids feel empowered by these sort of choices, the more they come to respect their parents' authority and learn to responsibly think and choose for themselves. A second strategy for building wisdom is to ask thoughtful questions. Truly curious questions open kids' minds to the problem-solving needed to get through their misbehavior. If you use them well, questions are an effective tool for parents who want to prioritize mentoring belief for the long haul instead of just managing behavior in the moment. Jesus was a master at this. He told stories, used analogies, and asked questions, lots of them, like 307 of them. <laughs> and practically speaking, asking instead of telling can help everyone get calmer. I learned early on in my work with high-risk teens that if a teen was misbehaving and I entered firmly by saying, stop it, that's not okay, I was much more likely to invite a power struggle than if I more calmly and sincerely asked, hey, hey uh, what's going on here? This invited calmness. And in the calmness following that question, teens had space for their brains to settle and maybe even engage in the question. And they would often explain what was happening. And if I listened well and kept asking more questions like that, they'd even help me see a new perspective that helped me help them even better. We've found the same basic concept is amazingly effective even with three-year-old kids as they start to understand cause and effect. The conversation isn't as complicated with these little ones, but their responses are much more open and much less defensive. The tone of our approach matters so much here because ki kids read between the lines of our words and they read our true attitude. And it also matters because when we think about our tone, we tend to change our posture and our attitude. So watch in these next few examples for the difference in tone and attitude in Lynn and I, even though the words are similar. See if you can view the following examples through the lens of your child and if you can feel the difference between the first question we ask and the second question. What a mess! What are you going to do about this? Quite a mess you got here. What's your plan about it? Do you know how your sister feels? Do you have any ideas here about how your sister might feel? How did this happen? What would you like me to know about this result? When we soften our tone like this, it settles us and our kids feel respected and can actually think about what we're asking. There are many great questions, but I want to share by far the two most common questions that I asked kids. And those two questions you've even heard in the context of this course. The first is, what's going on? And the second is, how would you like to solve it? <laughs> the first question gives kids space to think about what really is going on. And the second implies that solving it is the goal. And this gives the kiddos the space to start thinking about solutions. So the next time you find yourself tempted to start making demands or issuing immediate consequences, see if you can find a way to settle yourself and ask some form of one or both of those two questions. The final strategy we want to touch on here is solving problems as a team. Now there are certainly times when parents need to independently set firm and quick boundaries. But if that's all we do, we'll leave kids feeling anywhere from incapable to resentful over time. But when we regularly enlist our kids as teammates to solve problems, they grow in capability to go into the world ready to solve conflicts of all kinds. Jim worked a lot of nights, 
and a persistent problem we faced was bedtime. <laughs> Sorry to leave you with that. <laughs> yeah. Around eight o'clock at night, our kids would be wound up like three mischievous little monkeys. My goal was to get them in their appropriate slots and get them to stay there. And their job, evade mom at all costs. <laughs> Most of the time, it was a pretty rough ending to our day. I finally asked, kids, do we like how bedtime usually goes? No, you get really crabby by the end of the night. I know, it's frustrating trying to get you in bed and keep and get you to the sleep that you need, and I can get pretty cranky. Seems like it's frustrating for all of us. How would you like to feel about bedtime? I don't know. <laughs> well, Classic. I like to feel close and connected like it was the dessert on our day. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. So how could we set it up so you guys are more responsible to get yourselves in bed? The kids came up with a system of rewards and consequences that motivated them, and my job shifted to simply applying what they'd figured out. It wasn't perfect, but it was so much better. Mm -hmm. And sometimes all you need to engage your kids as teammates to solve a problem is something like, hey kiddo, what are your ideas for solving this problem that keeps coming up in a way that we'd both feel good about? Of course, most of the time, more insight building questions are needed. And we've created a diagram that helps parents understand what really happens during power struggles. And it's got questions to help you stay on the same team with your kids as you figure out solutions. Power struggles happen when kids and parents see each other as the opposition and both are determined to win. But if parents win and the kids feel like they lost, then in the long run, both of you lose because you communicate unintended messages to your kids like what's important to you is unimportant or you are wrong and I am right. And kids feel invalidated and they may even internalize messages like I'm unimportant, I'm a problem, I'm invalidated, and in some cases even I'm a loser. Power struggles can also become an unhealthy but predictable way that kids get strong emotions and eye contact from a parent. That dynamic can kind of create a bond, like this is how we give each other intense attention. But when parents invite their kids to join in the problem solving of a conflict, the result is almost always better communication, better solutions, and kids who believe I'm capable of solving problems with the most important people in my life. And even more important, it can be a great opportunity to become aware of God's presence in our messes. And to do this, parents can simply say, you know what? God loves us in this, and he wants to help us solve this problem. And then, if you're comfortable, you can even pray with your kids for insight and guidance right then. <laughs> One of my favorite starter questions when tension is high is, how does everybody feel about this situation? Mm -hmm. This question helps parents and kids bond over the fact that this is tough for everybody, and there are probably some shared feelings of frustration or discouragement. And the question, how would we each like to feel about it, helps develop a common goal between parents and kids to work toward. And it helps kids realize how good it would feel if you could solve the conflict between you. And the question, what's important to each of us and why, builds understanding and insight. Kids need to know that you care about what's important to them. Mm -hmm. The question, when this issue gets better, how does that happen and what does each of us do, can give clues to possible solutions. And when you give attention to the past or possible success, instead of just blame people for how they contributed to the problem, everyone's a bit more encouraged. A final question, how could we work together to get some of what is important to each person puts parents and kids on the same team to solve the issue in a way that everyone feels good mm -hmm. about? We'd like to share a testimony now from a family that was stuck in negative power struggles with their teen daughter. They got on the same team to solve their problem, used questions, and saw a huge turnaround. So take a look. The night, you know, where we discovered some stuff uh, on Emma's phone, questioning our own parenting and how did we go, you know, how did we, you know, miss it and how did we get off the rails, so to speak. And, I, you know, we did show up, or I showed up in the conversation looking for these sort of fix the behavior kinds of answers and quickly realized as we talked about things like feeling safe, you are loved. These things take time, right? People, work takes time. This was an ongoing 
mind shift for us in how we would engage in the relationship with Emma and really grow and earn that trust. And I remember Emma wanting to steer the conversation to, well, am I grounded? I said, well, let's just, let's put that on the shelf. That's, we don't want to talk about, you know, some punishment or something like that. That's not our hope. So it was just a conversation of, about really getting us all to think about, you know, what do we want this journey right here in front of us to look like so that uh, Emma had a voice and Emma had a choice and a say in that. Wow, <laughs> trust was built with Emma and Emma had a voice. The important message kids get when we teach skills and offer choices and ask thoughtful questions and guide team problem solving is that you are called and capable of making wise choices and solving problems with the most important people in your life. When we mentor helpful belief and identity this way, kids often prove us right. In this session, we've equipped you with five strategies under the two categories of teaching skills and building wisdom. The two strategies for teaching skills, how to practice skills when kids are calm, and find the just right challenge. The three strategies for growing wisdom offer two you-can choices, ask thoughtful questions, solve problems together. Your toolbox probably feels a bit full right now. We know, it's a lot. So here's your homework this week. Post these five strategies on your fridge or car dash, wherever you will see it, then pick one, only one. Write a sentence now about how you might apply it to one of your parenting challenges and then try it out until next session. Mm -hmm. And then in the next session, we'll be moving on to the message, you are responsible for your actions. We'll share a different perspective about consequences and equip you to really use them to build character and responsibility. And you'll learn to be the kind of firm that doesn't scare your kids into compliance. God bless you this week, and we'll see you next time. Okay, we're gonna show um, just another video or two, but uh, we're not going to have enough time to go through the whole thing. So what we want to do is, um, right now we're, we're moving from called and capable into responsibility. And we want to wrap it up with that because, you know, it's interesting, they'll, they'll well, they've already said it and they'll say it again. We tend to kind of have this, this pyramid thing upside down. We tend to think first and foremost of responsibility. And, um, and so all the emphasis that we've had in these first three weeks before today, especially the first two weeks, that's the, that's the big emphasis we really wanted to, to bring to bear along with, along with the responsibility. But like from the foundational principles of you are safe with me and you are loved no matter what, that that's, that's the kind of culture we would like to build increasingly at Sovereign Grace Dayton. So for families, for for us to come alongside of children, for us to come alongside of each other in that way, that people are, we're safe with each other and we're, we love one another. And, and, and there is a reality of we're, we're all called and capable by God's grace and, and there's common grace and there's also specific grace in lives. And we're also responsible for things we say, things we do, the way we act, the way we respond, um, all, all of that. And so all of this really, these are principles that, that are in every relationship, uh, that we want to be in every relationship, that truly are in every relationship. And, and I'm, it's, it's interesting, parenting is just one of those things um, that it's so easy just to turn it upside down and you just demand, all of a sudden you demand things of your child that you don't demand of yourself or other people. Um, and, uh, and you would, you know, you, you wouldn't correct other people in the way that you tend to correct your child. So there's just, it's, it's interesting. And so that's one of the things that we just wanted to kind of bring to bear. So one of the things that we're going to get to here in just a moment, turn to the next page. It's page 32, session seven, holding kids accountable. It's you are responsible for your actions. So again, um, you are safe with me. You're loved no matter what. You are called and capable. And finally, you are responsible. And it's not as though it's just like, Every conversation is, 
like you gotta, you got to rebuild this, re- do this, and you finally get to the responsible. It is the fact that your relationship with your kids, your relation, our relationships in the church are so built on the foundation of you are safe with me. This is gospel reality, gospel reality being worked out in our lives. You are safe with me, and you are safe with God, and we, we can come to him together no matter, no matter what's going on. And, and you're loved no matter what. God loves you so very much. Now how, how, how much is it that, that, that the church tends to think that God is against um, and he's angry? Um, we know, like what I said on Sunday, we know that he will, not, um, he will not let the guilty go unpunished, but he is first and foremost and broadly and steadfastly and ongoingly merciful and slow to anger, and I just know that when I parented, did not echo that very well. Um, sometimes it's just up and down, and there's grace for it. But here's a, a, the passage on the right-hand side in the box, in the bluish-gray box. Brothers and sisters, this is true in the church, and we're saying, hey, if it's true in the church, it's also true in families, for sure. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And you see the, the heart of restoration. They're going to speak into this reality of like our parenting and our discipline is not just about behavior modification. It's not about behavior modification. I mean, we want that, but it's ultimately about restoration. It's about restoring right. Bringing a kid from doing something wrong into restoration. This is what the Lord God is doing to us as well. Um, Not smacking us across the head, telling us to stop being idiots, stop being a little punk or whatever. He's gracious with us, gentle with us, and he's restoring us into right relationship with him. So in, in all of this context, Joy said it earlier, I just want to remind you that, that though we, we tend to be a, a, a church and a people who we just want to hear the word gospel, we want to, hear the, want to hear these things, the gospel is in and through all of this. Um, certainly, certainly secular teaching could be gospel-less and have good common grace kind of Action, uh, actions and parenting, and some of this stuff is similar, but the reality is at the base of this, at the root of this, is the fact that we are, we are safe and loved and called and capable and responsible for actions before God, and we have been loved with an everlasting love, and that's the way we parent. We are, our parenting, our relationships in the church are to be like marked, marked in such a significantly different way than the world. So it's not that things don't necessarily, things in the world are just absolutely dumb and they have nothing to do with good parenting. It's that, it's that you see, there's the, the power of the Spirit and the restoration that He is working in us and in our kids and actually is the hope behind our parenting. So as we're listening to this last, um, these last 20 minutes, 25 minutes, um, want you to, to be, be mindful of, uh, of not specifically, you know, how you parent, how, how, how your parents parented, or how you think other people should parent, but just consider uh, the things that uh, they're going to be speaking about here, and, and then we won't be getting to everything, but you can just, we'll, we'll send it out to you uh, shortly after this meeting. That the apology will come later on, mm-hmm. uh, as he as he comes to terms with what he did and and then how that affected the family, then he absolutely will apologize and make things right. I see their mistakes through the lens of compassion and empathy, not through the lens of judgment and punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew we had to put some boundaries around it, right? So it wasn't just seven days later. It's like okay, back to normal, because now we've we've talked about this and it's going to be a okay. No. It was, you can't be at your friend's houses right now. This is a natural consequence. We communicated to Emma that she was going to have to take responsibility for her decisions. 
Welcome to session seven of the Discipline That Connects online course. In this session, we're covering the top of the triangle, which is the message, child, you are responsible. This is the message that guides our children to understand the natural impacts of their actions and then reconcile by making it right. Welcome to session seven. You've made it to the top of the framework <laughs> where the key action is to correct a misbehaving child. And the key message to impart is you are responsible for your actions. This is the part of the framework parents have a lot of energy to learn right away. <laughs> they want responsible kids. But if you've made it this far into the course, you know that correcting kids effectively requires attention to the first three messages of the framework. When parents sincerely communicate, you're safe with me and you're loved no matter what, kids almost always calm down and drop their defenses. Which helps them to be open to the message you are called and capable of making wiser choices and thinking through how to solve problems together. Mm -hmm. These three messages prepare our kids' hearts to be receptive when correction is needed. And we seek to communicate the message you are responsible for your actions. So now let's get practical about how to hold kids responsible. Yeah, parents describe all kinds of various ways they work to get their kids to do the things they're supposed to do or to stop what they're not supposed to do. This can look all sorts of ways like forcing apologies or nagging or bribes or yelling or spanking or timeouts or grounding or one of the most common of all consequences these days, you lose your screen time. <laughs> the more parents try to force right behavior by these consequences, the more kids get the message that they are not responsible for things. When parents use these forceful strategies, kids often learn that it's mom or dad that is responsible to get them to do the right things mm -hmm. or stop doing the wrong things. Most of the time, though, when parents use forceful consequences, it's because they believe that if they use a painful enough punishment when kids do wrong, the kids will do right next time. And it's actually scary that that strategy can work to get kids to do the right thing, but not because they value doing right, but because they fear the painful punishment. So this isn't true discipline or discipleship. It's just behavior management. So we propose a different goal based on the key thought that Effective discipline puts responsibility on the child to right their wrongs. Instead of just going after right behavior, we had the primary goal of restoration, which puts responsibility on a child to make right what they've made wrong with their misbehavior. And instead of behavior modification consequences, we'll introduce a concept called make it right consequences. At the heart of this idea is the spiritual concept of restoration. And there's a mandate about how to restore people in Paul's letter to the Galatian church where he writes in chapter 6 and verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. We strongly believe that this general teaching to the church also applies very specifically to the way parents correct their kids. The gentle correction might be quiet or it might be strong, but it's done with a peaceful, caring heart. And the goal is to restore, to make things right, not just to punish. Keeping this biblical idea in mind helps us practically, too. When our goal is to help kids learn to value restoration, to make things right, we're much less inclined to nag, yell, control, or give in. When Jim and I remembered to make this shift, we were so much more purposeful and respectful and our kids were less angry at us because they began to understand that their life was their problem, not ours, and that we were for them, not against them. In this session, we're going to expand on three key questions that will keep restoration at the heart of your discipline of misbehaving children. The first question, what is the natural impact of the behavior? The next question, what action is needed to make it right? And finally, what related lost privilege might motivate a child to make things right? The first question on the way to using make it right consequences is, what is the natural impact of the behavior? This question invites parents to understand the automatic cause-effect relationship between an action and an outcome. Asking it gives insight into what wrong the behavior caused and then what right can be done to restore it. Mm -hmm. For example, if a child leaves a mess in the entry, it gets stepped on or tripped over. Stuff gets broken or muddy. You lose track of things. Other people might be affected. Or they might feel frustrated by the mess or quit caring and other people might start leaving messes too. 
or the person who last cleaned the entry feels disrespected, and so on. These are natural impacts. Parents tend to skip right over these natural impacts and focus just simply on getting obedience by demanding, clean this up. When this is the norm, kids come to believe, I clean up messes because mom or dad makes me and then I don't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Those are external motivations. But we're aiming at internal motivation here. And when parents can focus on natural impacts, kids may start to realize I clean up messes because it's disrespectful to leave my stuff in other people's way. Or when I clean things up, it's easier to find things when I need them. These are internal motivations and they're motivations to make things right. Mm -hmm. An example of this was Julie. She told me about how her son, Benny, would come home from kindergarten stressed most days and would find a reason to whack his little sister, Emma. When Julie tried to talk firmly to him about it, it didn't go real well. I hit her because you don't punish her enough. Mm. Well, all right. <laughs> I talked with Julie about how to put this teaching into practice, and a few days later, Benny came home frustrated and threw a toy at Emma, scaring her and hurting her a little. Julie assured Emma was okay. Then she sat down on the floor with both kids, took a deep breath, and said, Benny, can I tell you a story? Sure. Well, last week, I think, Emma accidentally bumped into you, and that didn't feel good to your body. And I think that bump was like how Emma feels right now. And right then, Benny's face changed. Like for the first time, he understood what it was like to be Emma. He got the natural impact. He interrupted Julie and said, I'm sorry, Emma, do you want to play Legos? You can have the first turn and then I'll take a turn. Now, Julie had previously lectured him about how Emma feels, but because this time she had a safe, gentle, loving heart and helped him truly understand the natural impact, he quickly wanted to make it right. To help kids like Benny understand the natural impacts of their actions, you can ask guiding questions like, what do you think happens when people do this or that? Or what would happen if you did this? You can also lightly tell stories of when the child was on the receiving end of what he's now doing to someone else. Like, do you remember when the neighbor kids picked on you? That didn't feel very good, did it? Or you can even share from your own mistakes. Kids love hearing your stories, and especially that you made mistakes, but that you got through it. <laughs> Benny's story is a great example of how once we name and help our kids discover natural impacts, kids may choose on their own to make things right. We also know that sometimes okay. they don't, which is why the next segment will equip you to put make it right consequences in place. Since we're running out of time and we're not going to show the last video where I mentioned that they got around more to talking about sin, I, and I hope that you'll watch the videos, but just in case you don't, I just wanted, I thought it was really good what they said, that um, employing all of these strategies does not rid us of our sin problem. You're not teaching your kids how to be perfect so they don't, you know, they'll still deal with sin and you'll still deal with sin. Um, so that's not the goal here. Um, they just talked about your child's need to have right relationship with God through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. And then they talked kind of like what I already mentioned, just about how they need to see how that affects you and that you're willing to confess your sins, especially when you sin against them, um, and be open about those things so that they can see it in action. And then we've mentioned to you this book um, that we just want to encourage you to get if you, uh, if you want to go deeper or you can go to their website and go a little deeper. I want to share with you just something that they say at the very end in the conclusion. Um, it says, knowing that how we discipline our children when they misbehave is perhaps our most potent opportunity to demonstrate grace and truth. And we extend this invitation in that moment. Um, if you haven't done so already, change the primary reason for disciplining your children. Instead of seeking to stop, change, or control behavior, make discipline that connects your goal, uh, what we've been talking about, this framework. With this as your target, you can consider the effectiveness of your discipline through a new lens. 
Instead of asking, did it get my kid to do what I wanted or did it work, you can first ask, was I safe? Does she know she's loved? Do I have a vision for my son or daughter's calling? And do I believe he's capable of learning the wisdom that will prepare him? Does she feel a true sense of responsibility? You see, when you ask those questions, you get the opportunity to take yourself to the gospel and to take them to the good news of Jesus as well. Um, and like we've said in weeks past, there's, it's, you know, in the moment of heat, it's not the opportunity to try to have a significant conversation about getting to the heart with your child when, when both of you are freaking out. Um, but to, to remember the first session, you are safe with me. Remember the posture, that posture of getting down eye to eye, face to face. You think about a conversation with somebody in the church you want to get to the table with them. You want to sit and have a conversation with them. And you want them to recognize that you love them. You're not just there to just get in their grill and, and confront them. You are there because you love them and because God loves them. And because you want to, honestly, you kind of want to learn what's going on. What's going on in their heart? Why, why this response? This kind of thing is true with your child as well. And um, um, so starting, starting young is... is uh, is a really appropriate uh, thing to do to, to practice. So again, thinking about discipline from a different standpoint of just, uh, like you just want this situation to stop because I don't like it, which is what I often did. Um, and I just wanted my child to, to be in control and to, and to stop making a mess of whatever. And uh, rather than walking through or thinking about the lens, look, thinking through discipline through the lens of safety. You're safe with me. You're loved. You're called and capable. And you're responsible. And as you're enjoying that framework in your family and in your relationships, can you see how the, just the gospel is just, it's like on a platter in that framework. And um, by God's grace, uh, change takes place.